Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, uh, the other half of this little double act we've got going here, the great and good Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. Hello, Grant. How are you today? I am full of the joys of fall, I guess. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yes, I'm, I'm, well, you know, I'm looking forward to this conversation, Bill, I have to say. I am as well. Um, and uh, I, 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 the only question I have is, I wonder if I should get a seatbelt for myself. <laughs> well, yeah, listen, I've, I've been incredibly fortunate to have spent several uh, hours talking to Chris over the years and you know I, I, I every time I've walked away um, just you know like a deer in headlights I mean his, his, his intellect is staggering his his gift for communication is is of a similar level and uh, you know the asset class that he deals in volatility is something that you and I both recognize when we when we kind of started designing this series. We didn't know where it was going to go, but we knew that volatility was going to be an extraordinarily important component. Yeah, now more than ever, actually. Yeah, yeah exactly right. So, look, I guess without further ado, we should uh, we should introduce Chris Cole of Artemis Capital Management. What do you think? Let's do it. Done. Well, Chris Cole, welcome to the Endgame. It's so so good that you could take this time to join us. Now, the, the first thing I have to do is make sure that we are talking to the real Chris Cole and not one of your Twitter imposters, because <laughs> you seem to have a few of them. Yeah, exactly. Apparently, this has been a problem with Twitter. I so I've been I've been trying to you know talk about a tail risk you know <laughs> that you don't see coming. Yes, so, right. uh, you know these <laughs> these imposters that have been popping up on Twitter, and uh, they're so busy with yeah. the election that they're not policing. Uh, well, if if you could just to make sure it's you, if you could just give us your I don't know your date of birth, your mother's maiden name, <laughs> and the name of your first pet, that would be. I mean, just just for Bill and I, obviously, that'd be great. I can guarantee. I can guarantee <laughs> that it's it's me. And my my uh, I, I recently adopted a puppy, so I think, and her name is Sky. Right. So I think that's that should be confirmation enough. I hope. Well, yeah. Hey, listen. You know, while we're doing this, we should tell anyone listening to this: uh, if you see an account on Twitter, which is I think Vol underscore Christopher without the I, uh, could you do Chris a favor and report them to Twitter because it's a fake account? Hopefully, we can get a few more people reporting it, Chris. Please do. Yeah, that'd be a big help. I appreciate that. So look, Bill and I have kind of been kicking around where to start because this is such a big topic, you know, volatility, particularly where we are now. And and uh, we arm wrestled over this. And I want to ask the first question. I want to take you back, if you can, to the, uh, the first time you and I sat down for a Real Vision interview in a, in a haunted hotel in Austin, yeah. Texas. Um, and you said something to me, this must be four going on five years ago, that really, really stuck with me. And you said at the time, you said, you know, the reality is there's only one asset class now and it's volatility. And that was four and a half years ago. And boy, were you right. And boy, is it becoming more right by the day. So can you just, just to kick us off, talk about why you said that and how, that, how your opinion of that has kind of morphed and, and grown over those last four years? Yeah, absolutely. The, the idea that there's only one asset class, and that is uh, volatility, and there's only two types of traders or investors out there, long vol and short vol investors. And what I actually mean by that is that 
If you look at the way assets behave, if you decompose them based on their return stream, they have characteristics that are uh, mean revertive with uh, big fat tails to the negative, uh, assets that make money most of the time, but then lose money very quickly in big drawdowns and uh, tend to follow mean reversion characteristics. And those assets tend to be correlated to the growth uh, cycle. They tend to be long GDP types of assets as well. Um, so it's interesting. There, uh, almost all equity-linked investments kind of follow this pattern. But the short vol could be, the way I look at it, um, could be something like value investing. You know, a value investor right. is going out there and looking to uh, buy inexpensive assets. They look to see when the market has uh, overcorrected to, or has gone too, too, too far too quickly and have, uh, cheap to, seek to buy below intrinsic value. That is a mean revertive strategy. It's a, Warren Buffett is the smartest short volatility trader out there. So uh, people who are uh, short volatility tend to bet on mean reversion, the expectation of stability, um, and uh, in, in a various uh, myriad of different forms, uh, whether that's an expectation of uh, mean reversion in correlations, mean reversion in uh, asset price uh, direction, um, or, or some sort of uh, uh, expectation of tangible value. Of course, there's literal shorting of volatility where people are shorting options, but I extend the definition to uh, really any bets on overall stability. Then there's long volatility style of investing. Uh, and really a lot of global macro traders, um, tail risk investing, um, systematic CTAs that seek to profit off a trend. These are strategies that look to, they don't make money most of the time, but they make uh, most of their money in small periods of um, diversions um, and turbulence in asset prices. And they tend to be non-correlated to the business cycle um, or anti-correlated to other long GDP assets. Uh, and so th th these types of return streams profit when correlations break down. They profit when um, interest rates explode higher. They profit when there's um, a lot of turbulence in markets. So the problem with most investors is that their portfolio, their portfolio is entirely constructed of these long GDP, short volatility style assets. And I always say you break down the composition of the average pension um, which is mostly 70% equity-linked investments, maybe 20% bonds. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the majority of that is, is short volatility in nature. Uh, many of these risk premium strategies are short volatility in nature. And they tend to collapse all at the same time. Now, of course, you know, for a long time, bonds were this classic hedge. Uh, you know, in many ways, people say, what was the best tail hedge you could possibly buy was long duration bonds when, when bonds were at 20%, right. Right. you know, well now at the zero bound um, bonds as a put option, it has, has really failed. And you and I talked, talked about that years yeah. ago. We talked about that years ago and we're seeing it play out today. Um, so to, in today's environment, most people are just layering on additional correlated bets um, either through risk premia through leverage, um, through credit, um, or through liquidity, in essence, to meet their retirement return targets. And uh, it, it, it's a disaster in the making because they're only relying on the short vol component. And they're not balancing long and short volatility 
uh, in a way that that can create the best outcome over long periods of time. I wanted to um, I, I'd like to explore that a little in a little more depth and combine it with another topic. But but first, I think it would be really helpful for folks to be able to get their head around all of this is that you uh, shared a really remarkable tweet two days ago where you showed you compared the the notional value of the option market at 20 trillion with the size it's about the same size as the government bond market with the equity market at say 38. 38 yeah. <clears throat> the, the the question that i have and i think something that would be useful to understand if you can do it in like a third grade le- well maybe eighth grade level <laughs> um explain how we got to the point that the tail is kind of wagging the dog you know where the where the option market is really moving the equity market around and at least it seems to my eye you can correct me if that's a an inaccurate observation but could could you tell us how we got to here yeah let's let's take a step back and I'll relate it how the options market is playing a role in this um i think you know we sit down and we talk about how do you define capitalism? What is the medium of capitalism? And that's fiat money. And of course, this gets to this idea, does, does money even exist? And it doesn't exist if it's not tied to gold. It's purely a thought abstraction. So it's only worth something because we collectively believe it is. And that's kind of interesting. We, we are dependent on thought abstractions. Uh, so... In this sense, when we look at what thought abstractions, uh, nation state exists because we believe in it. Um, money exists because we believe in it. Political parties exist because we believe in it. Reality becomes, these thought abstractions become reality. And that's in, in many ways an esoteric concept. Um, you know, in Jewish mysticism, there's this idea of a golem where yeah. you, know, you make something out of clay and it becomes real. In, yeah. in, uh, in Taoist mysticism, there's this idea of a tulpa. Um, so I think today in this world where they have flooded liquidity in to the system and they've sought to create the illusion of value by transmuting the medium of money. And this has created, I think, a trillion dollar question which is, can the medium by itself create value or does value exist independent of the medium? Um, So the idea, and there's two schools of thought here. One is the school of thought that as someone who has a CFA designation, I grew up believing in, which is that value is independent of the medium and intrinsic to the asset. That's, you know, Warren Buffett. That's Seth Klarman. That's this idea that the bid and ask don't represent value any more than a Magritte pipe represents a real pipe or a painting or pipe represents a pipe. Um, prices might fluctuate, but those prices are independent of, independent of the intrinsic worth. Well, now there's this second realm of thought which says value is generated from the medium. And in this sense, liquidity is the sole determinant of value defined by that constant bid and ask price. And as long as constant liquidity is supplied with a narrative 
value is created. And that's true whether the tulpa is corporate debt, whether the tulpa is the success of Elon Musk, whether the tulpa is a factor premium in the market. Uh, it doesn't matter as long as liquidity is flowing and there's a belief in wherever that liquidity flows, that alone creates value. And what we saw in March of 2000, this year, this is a solvency crisis. It's a continuation of the solvency crisis that started in 08. And what they, we saw correlation breakdowns. We saw basis trades blowing out. We saw all of these major problems. But I think what's really interesting is that inst they can't deal with the solvency issue. Right. So what global policymakers did is they printed $20 trillion to try to create value out of the medium to fool people into solving a credit and solvency problem with excess liquidity. And the net result of that is something absolutely kind of fantastic and in incredible um, as it's transmuted in all of its different forms. Now, how does this tie back to the options market? I think this becomes interesting. The options market has exploded to a degree that um, has never before seen. And for a long time, options were a derivative of the stock market. Option prices move based on their underlying. But when options become the dominant form, the dealer hedging of those options can in turn impact the underlying stock market. So this dealer hedging and the money flowing into options transforms the stock market into the derivative of the options market. And so for the first time in history this year, we have consistently seen the volume of the options market in the US options exceed the volume of the underlying stock market. Um, and a large part of that is you have you know, 13 million new Robinhood accounts, you have all of this speculative trading, but it really comes down to the fact that you have policymakers, you know, uh, print $10 trillion globally funneling liquidity injections into this market. And options have become a method for people to place speculative bets in the medium or the manipulation of that medium. Well, how is that tying around into a reflexivity? The, the, options, the options market we, we have seen for the first time in history, or excuse me, it's not the first time in history, but we've seen um, a tremendous number of people bidding up call options instead of put options. That's not new. People talk about it like it's new, but it's not new. That, that dynamic where call options were more popular than put options existed for long periods between 1996 and 2000. 
So we are, we are actually replicating the regime, of that regime in the options market. But what is new is how big the options market has become. The options, options world was a, a teeny world, uh, relatively small back in the late 90s. And it was a, an arena where, you know, you had dentists and doctors with a little extra money, you know, betting on these tech stocks through options. Uh, but it really was not widespread. Now there's been a democratization and we have uh, these flows are much bigger than they've ever been before. So it's not the fact that the speculative fury has been new. The fact, it's the reality that the, the uh, importance of the underlying derivatives market has become much more pronounced. That, that is the main shift. Well, dealers are forced to hedge these flows. So when a lot of people are buying put options, and I'm going to make this relatively simple because we can get into the weeds here, but there are different exposures Delta, Gamma, Vega, Vanna, that when you buy an option or sell an option and there's a presumably a dealer or bank on the other end of it, that bank is looking to, uh, or that market maker is looking to, to uh, manage, they're, they're not looking to take a directional position, they're looking to earn the bid ask spread. So they hedge those flows. And as a result of it, they're supposed to hedge their gamma or their vanna flows or their vanna positions. I want you to imagine that like a like gamma dealer gamma is like a rubber band. And most of the time, when there's a lot of of um, when there's a lot of put buying out there, um, and when there's a lot of call selling out there, it results in a dynamic where there's a relatively tight rubber band that increases. Um, that increases the uh, mean reversion of the market. Uh, but when there are imbalances on either side, it can create situations where the rubber band snaps. And it can snap in either direction. And what we saw in March was the rubber band snapping to the left side. And one of the things we're seeing in this environment is the rubber band snapping to the right side as dealers are forced to hedge these option flows that are more dominant than they've ever been before. So uh, um, in the chicken and egg department about that, is the, the structured products, are, did they come about because of the options and the search for yield in a world with no, no yield? Or were they a consequence of the fact the option market blew up on its own? Or is it so intertwined, it's not worth knowing which is which? You know, it's interesting because uh, in 2017, I wrote a paper um, that uh, was called The Alchemy of Risk. And it introduced this concept of the Ouroboros. Um, this idea that of a snake eating its own tail. And I said that there was $3 trillion of short volatility products in the equity market that had the potential to re that were reinforcing volatility uh, in a mean reversionary and lower and lower pattern, but that in the event that they broke could reinforce volatility higher. And those $3 trillion represented both 
uh, three plus trillion dollars represented a variety of financial engineering products that sought to use financial engineering and bets on stability in a myriad of different forms in order to create excess yield. So the most obvious of those were at the time the VIX ETPs and the, ex, the very popular short volatility trade in those VIX exchange traded products that, that actually Mike Green and I quite famously got into an argument at uh, the EQ Derivatives Conference with the CIO of a Velocity Shares product, and we told him his product was going to blow up. And uh, that got into a, a pretty heated argument, and, and, uh, and sure enough, you know, we were correct just one year later. But that was the smallest portion of that short ball trade. Um, the much larger portion of the short ball trade were things like risk parity funds, which bet on the uh, AQR wrote a, wrote a paper um, wrote a paper uh, that that called out my characterization characterization of of risk parity as being a short volatility. Well, in my definition, short volatility means short correlation, and risk parity or short correlation. We saw risk parity products blow out in March when both stocks and bonds, people forget this, were declining at the same time mm-hmm. for a per- portion of time in March. Um, so you have risk parity products that were using, that were short gamma and short correlation. They were short trend and they were short correlation between stocks and bonds. You had um, strategies like uh, leveraged share buybacks by corporations, which were actually literally short volatility through the mechanism that they used to, to execute that. So all of these strategies created, they, they all created a feedback loop that led volatility to be lower and lower and lower. But when it broke, it would cause an expansion of volatility higher. Now we saw that occur. We saw the washout and the breakage of that Ouroboros of risk occur, just as, as kind of predicted in that paper this last March. And it was not just the short volatility risk premium products, but it was everything from risk parity to all these leveraged basis trades. And, you know, some people talk about the Federal Reserve coming in and, and, uh, and, and spending all this money to uh, support the credit markets um, and to inject liquidity into the system. Uh, it was not meant for middle-class America. It was not. Uh, this was bailing out many of these multi-billion dollar hedge funds that had leverage basis trades on, that had leverage risk parity trades on, and were stuck in a liquidity feedback loop. And the, it had nothing to do, or it had very little, I don't want to say nothing to do, but it had very little to do with the corner bakery or the store down the street. This was, a, this was a violent unwind of that Ouroboros of risk, which many people had, you know, Mike Green, myself, had, had explained um, that was a major risk. And it was a violent unwinding of that massive multi-trillion dollar short volatility trade. And as a result of that, um, they had to supply liquidity because the gears of the market had completely broken. But what they've done is they sought to inject so much liquidity that the solvency problem, the debt solvency problem, is still alive and well. And 
There are people, there are practitioners out there, derivative practitioners out there, smart ones who will say that volatility, all it is, is liquidity. That all vol is, is liquidity. When there is a disruption in the medium and there's not liquidity, that's the sole determinant of what volatility is. I actually think that's short-sighted. I think liquidity is a big part of the, the issue. Liquidity is disruption of the medium. But volatility is a combination of liquidity and credit and solvency. So the classic problem uh, of a volatility spike is a situation where there is a solvency crisis, which leads into a liquidity crisis because of leverage. And so what the Federal Reserve has done in an attempt to, to grease the gears, they have thrown so much money to solve the liquidity problem that they've made the solvency problem the worst it's ever been in history. And people sit back and they say, that's it. There's no more vol. We're fine. We're out of the woods. No, the Ouroboros of risk has come unglued. But the solvency issue is more massive than it has ever been. And that's not hyperbole. Corporate debt to GDP, all-time highs. All-time highs. Um, the idea that uh, the, the, our uh, government debt to GDP at the highest levels that it's been uh, outside of wartime. And so we've never had corporate debt to GDP this high, and we've never had, um, uh, I mean, we, we can go down the list of what's, what's occurring. We just go down the list of what's occurring because we've, we've temporarily pushed everything off. Um, but you look at bankruptcies for companies uh, with over $50 uh, million in liabilities, uh, that's all-time highs. Corporate debt to GDP, all-time all highs. Um, banks reporting uh, CNI tightening, all-time highs. These are things that typically happen before the big bull spike, not after the big bull spike. And this makes me think that, and you guys had Lacey Hunt on the show uh, a while back. I had a wonderful time talking to Lacey in our offices when we did Real Vision interviews together. It was fantastic to, to bring him in, and I got a chance to speak with him for an hour. Um, but, you know, he talks about this idea that, you know, once you reach this threshold of debt, adding more debt doesn't solve the problem. It exacerbates it. So I, I don't think we're out of the volatility woods yet, but what they have done is that they have um, injected so much liquidity, it's created a Frankenstein monster out of the options market that is causing distortions that I don't think we've ever seen before in the interplay of, of the way the options market and the, and the stock market are working together. Chris, I, I want to I try and, and very carefully construct a question here because... I have so much going around in my head right now and I'm I'm going to I'm probably going to make a complete hash of this but I'm trying to put a lot of the pieces together here. You know when when Bill and I set out in this in this search for the end game and you know Mike Green came on and and he quite rightly said of course there is no end game because it just keeps going and and of course he's absolutely right. I think what Bill and I were trying to understand is the transition from the now to the then and and what that looks like but when I listen to you and I and I've I've read everything you've written and and as a writer myself 
I kind of throw off my mouth a little bit every time I read anything you write because it it's just <laughs> it's just so brilliantly constructed, and and the frameworks you use to describe these extraordinarily complex problems seem to not always but very often come down to um, uh, a metaphor that you use which is fantastical in nature whether it is alchemy for example which is you know which is one of those papers that and, and I should quickly tell people if they haven't read your work they need to go to artemiscm.com that's right I think I'm right in saying that just just read everything you can of Chris's because it, it will don't read it before you go to bed because you won't sleep trying to understand it but ah. but read it early in the morning but you use these um these kind of fantastical allegories and metaphors to describe these problems. And listening to you talking about volatility and liquidity and golems and topas, you know, we have liquidity and volatility are illusions. You know, they are ephemeral. They can evaporate at any time and, and they become nothing. And so I'm wondering as I listen to you if if the the end game isn't a transition from a world where illusion and fantasy rule and have the upper hand because of the belief that people have them have in them to a world where that belief disappears and what we're left with when this ephemeral smoke disappears is the reality and the reality is all-time high debt to gdp it's uh the weakest corporate balance sheets we've seen in history all the things that you point out is the reality and so as i listen to you and i read you and i think about all this stuff it it feels to me as though and as i say i'm trying to get this question right because in my head it's just spinning is an end game of sorts is a transition from a fantastical world that is really belief driven belief in liquidity belief in all this stuff to something which is more based in reality and and, and when you talked about fiat money being capitalism it's it's so true, and I just hadn't thought of it that way before. And for that to happen, for that transition to have to take place, the only door we can go through that bridges the two is the volatility door, because the volatility door is the only thing that will make people realize, okay, that was fantasy, go through the vol door, this is what reality looks like, and it's a smoking ruin of a hellscape on the other side of it. <laughs> Am I, I mean, I hope I'm making sense here, in my head, I'm making this much sense, uh, but but I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And and you can say something like you're a moron. I'm perfectly fine with that because I get that all the time. I, you're very far from a moron. Yeah, I mean, actually, I, I've really always I always thought your questions are some of the most intelligent of any any anyone who's ever. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, thank you. Because I've been grasping all the time. So I've always I've always enjoyed uh, working with you on these, but um. I, I think, I think there is an I think there is an end game in the destruction of the belief. You know, volatility is a collapse in the belief system, and that results in a collapse in the medium. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, how, what are two routes that can occur? And in my in my recent paper, I talk about this idea of an eagle that comes down yep. and attacks the Ouroboros and kills the serpent. So the serpent is that cycle of short volatility that is broken up by the serpent. And the serpent has two wings. And there's this left wing, which is, that's when people stop believing in the, uh, in the ability of companies to service their debt in these bad business models. And I mean, that's what we saw in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, where 
where all of a sudden there is a collapse uh, and a classic debt default collapse. The other framework is one where, where central banks have a debt jubilee. We go ahead and we make the Fed's balance sheet legal tender. Yep. And yep. people lose belief in the medium of money, which has happened many times historically, as you are a scholar of, much deeper scholar than I am of that history. Um, so in either of these wings, you have to be in long volatility style strategies to survive. You have to be by any study of history. Now, the problem is that doesn't necessarily mean going out and buying put options, you know, or just rolling tail. We have to broaden our concept of what volatility is because if you're talking about the left wing um, of that secular collapse, which is what occurred during the Great Depression, which is what occurred in 2008, you know, in that scenario, you want your, your long volatility exposure comes from uh, left tail protection. Um, it comes from cash, comes from, it's, uh, it's hard to get exposure in bonds now with the zero, but in the past, you got a lot of uh, ability from bonds, not so much anymore. Um, but you want to be in high quality assets in, in that sense that can preserve capital or that can pay off non-linearly, um, like tail risk protection on that left tail. The right tail is something much more, you know, much more interesting. And that's uh, most recently we saw that in the, in the 70s after the Nixon shock where they, yeah. they devalued versus gold. And, you know, in that scenario, you want to be in, uh, you, actually, you actually want to, you want to be in real assets. Yep. You want to be in things like gold. You could bet on the right tail of options, but financial assets lose their real purchasing power. Um, so that's the other form of long ball. Now, this is the problem is that, you know, people's belief in the stock market and people's belief in the bond market reflects massive recency bias. So, you know, in my, in my recent paper, I talk about this idea that um, the last 40 years were remarkable uh, period of financial history, the last four decades, um, you know, is one of the most significant uh, periods of secular stability and asset price growth ever, driven by this combination of interest rates dropping from 20% to zero, this this large baby boom generation coming, coming on in and spending, um, huge uh, reduction in taxes over that period of time, uh, huge uh, ability to export our inflation globally uh, due to globalization. And, you know, it's incredible. Uh, I think it's 94% of the returns of domestic equities over the last 100 years come from those those four, de- uh, yeah, that, that period between uh, 1984 to 2007, uh, 76% of the profits from bonds. So, you know, this, this is, you know, incredible. Um, and what's truly scary is that the pension systems out there have bought into this and have now kind of placed their bet on that model of equity-linked products, private equity, um, and bonds, and are are really just leveraged to this tremendous recency bias over the last four decades. But um, what will get you through the next four decades of secular secular shift and secular default 
will be being able to be diversified in left tail and right tail exposures. Um, now, I am not smart enough to know which way it cuts because what's going to happen is that that's going to be determined by policymakers. Yeah. And um, that's going to be determined by the winds of social change. And I do know one thing, though. If they keep doing what they're doing, which is just trying to inject liquidity to solve the solvency problem, further exacerbating the income disparity, we run this 10 standard deviation, 20 standard deviation risk of a breakdown in democracy. Yeah. And I told that to the New York Times back in 2017. I said, I, you know, I'm not scared of the left tail. I'm not really scared of the right tail. I, I am scared that they, they take this experiment and keep going and they create a tail risk that, that you cannot hedge, which is complete civil unrest. Yeah. And yeah. we are now beginning to see that. We are now beginning to see that. Um, and uh, that's, that's your real risk uh, of the political risk. Um, and that's also how it can end. You know, you can, you can have a war or you can have a, you can have a social revolution. Those are the other less. Um, outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. Less, less ideal outcomes. Yeah. We always, we talked about this, you know, Grant in, in that interview back, back in 2000, yeah. I think it was 2017 at the Driscoll, you know, this idea that, you know, volatility, you cannot destroy volatility. You can't Just destroy exactly risk. Right. Yeah. You can only transmute it in, in yeah. form and time. And so what they've done is they've distributed, you know, one standard deviation risks into tail risks. And they've brought that out to the world, uh, pretending like they're destroying risk and they're doing anything but. They're just redistributing it in different, in different ways, taking risks that we can't even fathom right now. And we're seeing the result of that just, just as we talked about many years ago. Yeah. Chris, you, you said that um, you didn't feel strongly that you knew w w which wing it was going to be. But it seems to me that, or, or does it seem logical that you could make an educated guess in that, given that the central bankers feel themselves to be almost um, omnipotent, and there, there doesn't seem to be anyone who sees the dark side of these, these money printing strategies, the one of the worst one being the one you just talked about, uh, income disparity and wealth disparity, but they've tipped, it seems to me they've tipped their hand and about the only way that they, you can get the, the left tail risk, you know, collapse would be after they've tried to kick the can down the road again, like after the election, you know, next, you know, if the, the, the Fed will bring more juice, the Congress will bring more juice. It seems almost impossible that they would not. And if the market has a temper tantrum between here and there, it seems quite likely that they will. So it seems to me that I know we can't know, especially when we're talking about all of this kind of crazy and wild nitroglycerin, but I think we can, we can assume that they're going to push the hand in that direction until such time as something starts to break. Um, does, does that seem like a reasonable game plan or is it just, too deterministic in a world you can't you can't be that sure about. Yeah, let me. Um, that that does tie into my thinking. There's been a lot of talk about right tail risk recently, and um, I'm actually of the belief system 
that given given that we have um, obviously the market is uh, now majority passive. You guys have done a lot of great work with Mike, and I actually helped to test Mike's theory back in the day um, on passive. Actually, uh, built my own simulation that verified the idea that you know as the market's mostly passive um, and becomes dominated by passive investing, those uh, that it becomes more volatile and there's less alpha for active investors. Um, you know, in that sense, we've already tipped the scale in that direction. And uh, someone can listen to your interview with Mike on that. Uh, and he can better articulate it than I can. But, you know, in, in, this, in this framework, at the end of the day, you, you're going to have massive flows coming out of markets from these baby boomers. Huge flows that are mandatory, you know, mandatory redemptions, the 401ks and IRAs. Uh, on top of that, we have this major corporate solvency problem where, you know, the the idea that uh, we have some of the highest corporate debt in, in all, all time. And, um, and we've put off a lot of the problems with the consumer. So let me give an example on this. In the, uh, we've, we have a, uh, the CDC has the moratorium on evictions that runs through the end of this year. Uh, you have the moratorium on uh, student loans, which runs through the end of this year. Uh, the FHA loans. Most people don't know this. FHA, Daniel D. Martino Booth has done amazing work on this. The FHA loan delinquency rates are higher than they were in 09. Mm -hmm. But they're not, they're not allowed to uh, foreclose on these individuals, but that runs out in March. So, you know, at some point the piper has to be paid. And for that reason, I believe we have one more big sucker punch on the left tail. One more big deflationary sucker punch coming. Um, and that's kind of evident of what we saw in the Great Depression as well, where uh, there were these huge rallies after stimulus. Uh, but I think at that point, the social unrest will be so much that we just open up the floodgates and we just do full money printing and we will see right tail risk uh, at a level that we maybe have never seen in America, that Europe, Europe people, people's great grandfathers know about in Europe. Yeah. In, in those scenarios, you know, let me give some numbers on this about how, you know, how do you construct this? Well, I think you need that left tail exposure in, in that next deflationary sucker punch. But when the Fed opens up and when they go ahead and they make legal tender and they just print, I mean, gold vol is at 20%. Gold vol in the 70s has reached 80%. That's, I mean, that's the volatility, not much, not only the price direction. So if you're owning physical gold, you're betting on, on the non-linearity of, of right tail options on gold, and the vol goes from 20 to 80 and volatility and, and gold goes up 800% as it did in the 70s, you know, in that, in that scenario is what happens during a fiat devaluation, you're making money in triple convexity. You're, you're making it on, you're making it on, uh, you're making it on the, uh, the underlying movement. Uh, which is linear, but you're making it on the gamma of that movement. You're making it on the expansion of the volatility and you're making it on the expansion higher in interest rates. And we can talk about how interest rate volatility is at all time lows. That's the other amazing thing. Yeah. So in the event that they let the floodgates go, um, rate vol should pick up dramatically. Um, I, I think this is, I think, so I, I do think we're going to get one more big sucker punch before they will be forced. If I had to kind of, if I had to kind of make an educated guess, 
I can't predict. I don't claim to have this ability to predict, but if I had to make an educated guess, I would say that deflation is going to have one more big sucker punch to the left side before they're politically forced to completely deflate, uh, to completely destroy the medium of fiat in order to have a debt jubilee. Um, and I think that presents tremendous opportunity um, if you're playing volatility um, and if you're holding a balanced portfolio uh, in, in long vol and short vol assets. Um, I think it's going to decimate the traditional uh, pension and the, uh, the way the traditional pension fund is situated and it's going to decimate, unfortunately, the way the traditional um, uh, retiree has their portfolio structure. Yeah, Chris, you, you you chose a word there, um, which uh, which is rattling around my head since you said, it, and that's the word experiment. Um, you know, you're talking about this experiment that's been going on, and that's that's for the longest time, that's exactly what it felt like was an experiment. You know, how does this work? How can we push this? And now we're seeing you know MMT being put forward because again, it confirms what's happened, and it's it's descriptive as someone was writing about this week rather than prescriptive. Um, but it, it feels as though it's no longer an experiment. It is now moved from a, an experiment to a necessity. We have to keep doing this. We're, we're not tinkering here. We're not kind of coming up with new ideas about how to maybe keep this thing together, how we can get out of this. We are now doing what we're, we absolutely have to do. We're being forced to do by the underlying conditions. And, and like you, I, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I believe exactly the same. There is one more big deflationary sucker punch coming. But I wonder uh, when thinking on a longer time frame and trying to think about the end game, which I don't think that sucker punch is the end game, that is one more step on the road to the end game. I, I feel like the end game is that right tail that you're talking about ultimately because that's when everything will change. That's when everything in you know, 40 years of deflationary pressure will change and we'll get a complete paradigm shift. And I wonder that that left tail event, that sucker punch, which is such a great way to describe it. Um, I feel like there's a chance it could be very dramatic, but also incredibly short because when it happens, we are all going to recognize it for what it is. And I think you're right at that point, they will throw absolutely everything that they will go full craziness and create legal tender from the Fed's balance sheet, as you said, which was Lacey's one deal breaker for him. He said, if they do that, I will jump off the deflationary train after four decades and hop adamantly onto the inflationary train. Do, do, you, do you see it similarly, that it's a very short, very sharp shock, almost one that unless you're positioned for it and, and you capitalize on it instantly, you're almost better off looking through it and trying to position yourself with gut check in place that you're going to have to go yeah. through this. But what waits on the other side of it is a trend that you can ride for a long time and, a, and, and for a long way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think if they if they do signal that, that's going to be a long, long train. I mean, the one thing that the people, you know, I always talk about this aspect about volatility during during uh, uh, Weimar Germany, and I'm not necessarily saying that we're going to get Weimar Germany, right? right. But, but you know, but in 1919, volatility was around 20 percent in Germany. And by 1923, nominal volatility in their stock market would have topped out at over 2,000%. <laughs> right. so, so, you know, in that sense. So in that, and, wow. and you know, and what, what occurred during that period, if you read, you know, as, as 
both of you are students of the history, you know, every time you would come out and the loan would be at 5% and people are like, oh my goodness, it's, rates have jumped so high. And then it'd be at 10% and people are like, oh my, rates have jumped so high and then would be at 20%, that'd be at 40%. So I, I, I think there are, these, these trends tend to go on for much longer than people imagine. Um, and uh, I think we, we began to sort of see the signs of that where um, we began to see a lot of the signs of the breakdown of many of these relationships um, that have persisted for many, many years. You know, one was the stock bond correlation breakdown, right? Yep. Which is, that was, and I, I think the one thing that hasn't gotten enough press, it has not got enough press is the fact that stocks and bonds were selling off in tandem in March. And that was causing massive pain and risk parity. And, yep. and it's also causing massive pain in these pension systems. And that's when the Fed stepped in with a lot of liquidity. Another thing that doesn't get a lot of attention, um, I pay attention to it um, because I trade a lot of gamma, which is trend. You know, when you own an option, you own, you own volatility, which is vega, but you own gamma, which is trend. And, and when we talk about how, how the flows in the option market are distorting, um, are distorting uh, the underlying stock market, it's because dealers are hedging that second derivative. Right. We get back to the, the basis on this, but we we have ha- we reached in March all time lows in negative autocorrelation. But let me put that a different way: all time highs in mean reversion. That's probably the simpler way of putting that. Mean reversion in the stock market reached all time highs ever in March, ever after the Fed injected money. And this is after mean reversion was already at historic highs for the last decade. And so what does that mean? It means that a buy the dip strategy. Yes, what does it mean? Yeah, it means that a buy the dip strategy in the stock market, a buy the dip strategy in the stock market, which is by nature a short volatility strategy, one of the ways that you replicate a variance swap, which is a vol bet, if you're shorted, is by, by buying dips. So this idea that if today was a huge down day in the stock market, so what you do is you say, okay, I'm going to buy. I'm going to buy after the down day. And I'm going to sell after the update. So that is based, the profitability of that strategy is based on this idea of mean reversion, or we might call that negative autocorrelation or negative serial correlation. So each day's return is negatively correlated to the, to the next day. That reached, that negative autocorrelation, or another way of putting that mean reversion, mean reversion was the highest level ever, ever in over 100 years of stock market data, ever. And the reason why mean reversion is measured by that correlation we reached the highest level in March is because of this liquidity-fed interest rate reaction function. One of the things that we see in markets where the medium of fiat breaks down is that uh, negative autocorrelation becomes positive correlation to daily returns. So that means equity markets start trending. That means if today was a down day, tomorrow is going to be a down day, the next day is going to be a down day. Or if today was an up day, tomorrow is going to be an up day, the next day is going to be an up day. 
that's what we see. Guess when? Guess when mean reversion? Or guess when mean reversion was at its lowest? Or another way of putting that is trend was at its highest. The end of August. It was well. Trend made a huge rebound, but actually, if we go further back across history, was actually um, in the seventies after Nixon devalued versus gold. Yeah, interesting. That was the secular high in trend. We reached the secular peak right when interest rates peaked. Yeah. Right? And that's when all of the turtle traders and the trend followers were at mm. their, their power, right? And since that secular peak that coincided with the rise in interest rates and peaks in gold, we have been on a secular down draft in trend or uh, decline in, in autocorrelations, reaching the, the worst performance of trend and the best performance for mean reversion ever. So if you go back and look across history, um, typically what you see is that, um, what you see is when, uh, when a period of, of secular growth reaches its nadir, um, that's when mean reversion is the most profitable. And that's what occurred during the last Great Depression. Rates go to zero. The central banks have no, no more money. You have to devalue. And during the devaluation process and the inflation process, that's when you see um, trend come back in. Um, this, so in many ways, the, the way of looking at this, this is a mathematical way of saying this is the transition between a short volatility and a yeah. long volatility environment. And all of a sudden, when, when a trending equity market becomes back in vogue, which generally occurs when there's interest rate volatility, when there's uncertainty regarding inflation, um, it, it, and when there's, um, or just, or when markets are just allowed, when companies are allowed to fail, you know, when they're actually allowed to go bankrupt, and capitalism is allowed to, you know, when there's actual creative destruction, um, is when things trend. Um, and I think when, in one way, when we, when you see that come back violently, uh, that is, that's one of the mathematical ways you can actually measure when this occurs. Of course, we will, we will know it. We will know it through, through the policy action. And, yeah. um, that's now keep in mind that trend can occur in either direction too. So, but, it but, just, but Chris, it just I, I think I, I think if, if you kind of step back and simplify this, um, it makes sense that when interest rates have taken a forty-year journey to the zero bound, I think I think what what's confused a lot of people is when we hit zero, it didn't just turn around. It was well, we can't go any further, so we need to go in the other direction. But we've been kind of bumbling around here for the last several years with this. But it, but to me, intuitively, it makes sense that if if once you reach that level, yes, there's going to be this period of bottoming and a period of volatility where the market's trying to continue that trend, but can't do it because we come back to that fantasy versus reality kind of struggle. Negative real interest rates, let's face it, are a fantasy. They, 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 they can't exist in the real world for any period of time. So, you know, when he talk about this, it makes sense to me that, that ultimately the way this breaks out has to be back in the other direction to, to positive rates, to... To higher rates, to to reality over fantasy. I mean, it 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 just makes so much sense to me that that's 
the period, the process we seem to be going through right now. And li- literally, it will impact the fundamental way that asset prices behave and move right. in, in a very fundamental way, in this very simplistic idea of trend versus mean reversion, we take for granted this mean reversion in markets. Yes, that's true. But we don't recognize that mean reversion as being a function of the interplay between interest rates and risk assets and the Fed reaction function. And that, that, that mean reversion that we've become so used to and we take for granted I was just on a panel the other day and people were talking about, oh, you, you always have to, you always have to you know, take your profits. You always have to take your profits on a, on a vol position because, well, if you look over 100 years, um, like a long vol position carried positively for the greater part of, right. I actually modeled this in one of my papers, right. you could show that a long volatility position, mainly through the trend component, carried positive, and by long volatility, I mean that could either be an option on the right or left tail, carried positively for most of 70 years. It's been the last 40 years that have been the anomaly, particularly the last 10. Um, and, but we suffer from this recency bias. So the very nature of how financial markets work and what we think about price movement will, will change if that theory is correct. And that actually causes massive problems for a lot of pension systems yeah. and, um, and quantitative managers that have really only looked at maybe 10 or 20 years of history, you know, to, right. to, sort, of, <laughs> to sort of base their, their leverage strategies on, which is exactly why the Fed needs to inject so much liquidity. That's, it, goes back to the, it, it goes back to the idea that the Fed gave a, a select group of massively leveraged hedge funds that I can't name, but I think people can figure out a de facto bailout in March, you know, via QE infinity and this repo liquidity, you know, and this is all the time while the middle class is waiting for middle class businesses are waiting for a lifeline. Yeah. Um, so, you know, too big, to, it's been private, too big to fail is just, it has moved from banks and it's just been privatized. So, does the passive component or the, sorry, the size of the passive component, doesn't that further sort of suppress the mean reversion tendencies? No, no, actually or- it, it amplifies. So that the passive component, and this is part of, uh, this is part of the work that, that Mike Green has done. Yeah. Now, two years ago, I wrote about this, you know, Mike came to me and he said, look, I'm, I'm basing the simulation. Can you test it for me? And I have two hypotheses. One hypothesis is that, um, that, that the more the market is passive, the more it should be a volatility amplifier. Right. And I said, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense to me intuitively. I'm right. like, definitely, that, I get it. And he said, my second thesis in, in Mike Green's theory is that, um, is that uh, the second thesis was that the, the greater the market is passive, the more it crowds out active investors. So um, Mike said, can you, and I, I said, I didn't buy that second part. I actually pushed back on him. I'm like, I, that doesn't make intuitive sense to me. Why would it crowd out the ability to generate alpha for active managers? Well, I built a simulation and came up with nearly the exact same numbers that Mike did that, that showed uh, both, of these, both of these elements to be true. And the way I looked at it, it's, it's, almost, like a, it's almost like a drunk guy at a bar, right? 
And so imagine, imagine you have uh, this, he's, a, he's a, a wrestler, he's huge, he's a giant guy. And he gets, gets really drunk at a bar and he wanders out to find his way home. Of course, he's hammered. And the result of that, there's going to be a lot more volatility in whatever way he walks. Right? <laughs> That's clear. Now, imagine you're an active manager who gets paid to guide him home. Right? So it's like, okay, hey, I'm going to give you some money. And can you help my friend who's really drunk, you know, just make sure he doesn't wander off on the freeway somewhere. But the problem is that the drunk guy is, keeps growing and he becomes this, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, 10 foot, you know, 10 foot tall giant. And the active guy is this teeny, you know, five foot guy with no muscle. So that's what happens when the balance comes out because the role of active investors is to act as a volatility buffer. You know, they buy when things get too high and they sell when things get too low. Well, if, if the active investors are these puny little guys that are trying their best to drag and guide their drunk passive investors home to value, but they, they can't, they're just dragging along on his foot. Um, they're not going to get paid because they're too small to influence. So the predominance of passive becomes this massive volatility amplifier. Now, throw on leverage and the options market and tons of new entrants into the market via, via democratized platforms like yeah. Robinhood and lots of uninformed investors. Now here's the kicker. Options, the delta hedging of options, I won't get into the mechanics of it, but actually become more volatile to hedge the options market the lower interest rates go. If you push interest rates into negative territory, an option can actually have a higher delta exposure to the, to the underlying than one. It's, it's incredible. You know, so the, maybe not for short dated options, but definitely for longer dated options, this is a phenomenon. So you are, they are just layered on, on anomaly after anomaly. Um, and my God, I mean, here, here we are. <laughs> Here we are in this brave new world. Christian, when, when, you, when you talk about this stuff, I, and I'm thinking about, about what Mike was, was talking about here, and you, when you get to this point where, um, you know, the, the mean reversion feeds into the passive, but when it starts to go the other way, the passive, to your point, has just become so big. But by its very definition, because, it, because it's passive, once you've gone past that turning point. Once you're on the other side of that and the trend is now the other way, to your point, when you said, well, today's a down day, so tomorrow's going to be a down day, tomorrow's going to be a down day. Um, then we get into that, that tail event that Mike was talking about where markets can go to zero because we've crossed through that paradigm and we're on the other side. And, and you're, to your point, Shaquille O'Neal is now drunk and he's dragging Spider Web around but he's, he doesn't want to go home. That's the problem. He doesn't want to go home. He wants to go across the freeway. <laughs> and, and there's no way Spud's going to stop him. And that's absolutely. You can, because at, at that component, I mean, theoretically, if you move into a market that's dominated by passive players and there's not enough active players to buffer, 
you remove either the bid or the ask. Yeah, it can exactly go exactly right. It can go in either direction. It can go in either direction. So this is what I talk about. I think you know flows over fundamentals. Fundamentals are dead. The only yeah. thing that matters are flows. In that's that's the Frankenstein monster that they created. So the uh, so passive investing becomes a liquidity momentum flow. And all that matters is who's putting money in and who's taking it out. And then the options market, which has, is now bigger than ever before, now amplifies the second and third order effects of those flows yeah. through dealer gamma hedging and dealer vanna hedging. And, and the only person who's able to backstop that is the Federal Reserve, but they have to keep spending an exponential amount of money to do so. This is the lie that this is the lie. They talk about how they talk about how the Fed balance sheet expansion was was important in March. It began way before March. Right. It started in the fourth. It started a year ago in the fourth quarter of last year. Yeah. When there began to, there were there were cracks in the credit market, there were cracks in the interbank lending market, and they began expanding their balance sheet at the highest rate, actually even greater than yeah. early 2009. And COVID was just an amplifier. It was so COVID has been a convenient excuse. We had to take extraordinary action because of this. This COVID was an amplifier to a solvency and liquidity crisis that was already coming. And and so. But in this flows over fundamental world, the problem is it, 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 it creates an, it requires an increasing amount of flooding of the medium, the medium of money and the, the, the framework of liquidity for them to, and an increasing amount of, uh, it, it, it's extraordinary, the idea of lending money to the treasury department, the, the treasury to, to set up an SPV to buy corporate debt. Right. I mean, it, it's just like, this is, this is incredible, you know, and it's absolutely incredible. And so there's an exponential amount that needs to occur. And we're not at that point because the trust in the medium is still there. The trust yeah. is still there. People yeah. still firmly believe in the medium, but there, we will be at some breaking point. I, I don't know. I don't know what tail that goes in, but I think, I think you can get both as we discussed about earlier. Let me ask you this, Chris. Um, uh, to take kind of current events and knowing that we have the election and the Fed and the Congress coming in in the not too distant future, and <clears throat> that'll have some impact on what happens next. I remember vividly, we were at a grants conference, or, or maybe I think you made the presentation in 09. Everyone was terrified of the fall of 09 after what had happened in 08. And you made the point that was um, that really nothing bad could happen because there had been so much insurance taken out that yeah, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the way I remember it is it would have basically taken an act of God to get the market to actually go down because of what had already occurred. Given that we had this event in March and given that I've read that there's, you know, that, that the, the skew is pretty big in, you know, through the, through November because people are worried about uh, and premiums are worried about the, you know, the uh, dragged out election. Are, are we anywhere close to that sort of thing or uh, that where, whereby there's been so much insurance taken out that 
it really can't crack big or is it orders of magnitude different? Yeah, this is a great question. So to recap, it was uh, the Grants Conference I presented in, the Jim Grant Conference was 2012. And that was based on my 2012 paper that talked about um, the idea that we were in a bull market in fear and that everyone was hedging the wrong tail. You know, in effect, that there was so much fear in the left tail. Oh, okay. And that was when tail risk, and just recapping, I think you got it exactly right. Um, no, but I was off by three years. Three years. <laughs> yeah. Embarrassing. yeah, what, what a three years it was. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, at that, at that point in time, a lot of times when you're when you're buying volatility, you're you're not buying ball. You're buying what the market's expectation of ball is in right. the insurance premium, and right. that the left tail event, that tail risk hedging, that left tail event, was priced um, was priced like a standard risk, and that left tail exposure was no longer really. Uh, affordable the way it was pre pre crisis elements of that today um the ouroboros of the ouroboros of risk that i talked about before of that short volatility has unwound and um there's a much uh there's a much better bid in left than um there was pre-crisis that being said i i don't think we're anywhere near the levels that we were in 2012. in fact what we've actually seen is because of these massive liquidity injections, we've been seeing a tremendous amount of right tail buying. And what that has done is it's created, without jumping into the technical framework on it, we've seen um, a lot of, it's very similar to a repeat of the 1990s, where we've seen a, uh, a lot of stocks with, uh, very, with skewed, skewed to the right side, meaning that people are buying call options in Amazon and call options in Tesla um, at a much greater degree, um, 90th percentile level of right tail skew buying in those names. Um, we've seen a situation where uh, the indices, there's been much more call buying compared to put buying. There's been elevated equity returns with elevated volatility. And we've also seen this phenomena of spot up and vol up. So uh, this is what we experienced in September and October, where when there's a lot of right tail call buying, the way the dealers have to hedge that exposure, it creates a framework where stocks and volatility will rise in tandem. And this is based on the way the dealers are forced to hedge what are known as you know the gamma, the second order exposure, or the vanna. You know, I talk I talk about that being like the rubber band, which way the rubber mm -hmm. band snaps. So what occurred is that temporarily in September and October, um, the correlation between the VIX and the S and P broke down because of the way that the dealers were forced to hedge all of these call options that they were buying. And that becomes very interesting. Now, we saw that in the 90s, but the main difference, it's nothing new. It's something that we experienced in the 1990s. But what makes it fascinating today is that the options market is much, much bigger today than it was in the late 90s and much more prevalent. So the way the dealers are forced to hedge that exposure um, has resulted in a perversion in, in some of the traditional relationships between volatility and the stock market that we see as evidence. Um, I mean, we were, we were down near the 10th decile in terms of S&P VIX 
uh, correlation based on that. Um, is that a long-term phenomenon? It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell right now. As the market has begun to show weakness, uh, and during the last uh, roll-off of options, we've begun to see a more traditional allocation. There's been a tremendous amount of hedging around the election. That's something we definitely saw. I, I said, I talked on Twitter how that was one of the most richly priced known unknowns in the history yeah. that I had ever seen. Uh, truly, uh, that, that known unknown was, was, was seen by the market, was priced by the market. Uh, I, I believe that you sell known unknowns and you buy unknown unknowns. So even though the election was very um, richly priced, uh, you know, for a time being, you could go longer, longer out on the volatility term structure and find better bargains. Um, so I think to go back to the original question without getting too technical, we're, I would not say we're in a bull market for fear yet. Um, if anything, we're in a different type of, we, we entered briefly into a different type of 90s, 1990s frenzy where there was, a, there was a focus on leveraged bets. Now that regime is being challenged, and now volatility is not dramatically underpriced, has come back to a level that's more fairly valued than it was pre-crisis. Um, but is that left tail is, I, I would not say, dramatically overvalued the way it was in 2012. Chris, uh, uh, <laughs> am I, I, I get the feeling that the options market um, and perhaps all markets are somehow simultaneously becoming more and less sophisticated. <laughs> what do you think about that as a as a premise? Yeah, it's it's fascinating, right? Uh, you know, I, I just I get because I, I just you know, when, when I look at how these markets have evolved, they are constantly becoming smarter, they're becoming more sophisticated. They're having a lot more computing power thrown at them, a lot more brain power thrown at them. But we seem to be at a moment in time where, to your earlier point, the, the money that's coming in is dumber and, and, and deliberately so in many cases, particularly with the passive vehicles, but accidentally so uh, with the, you know, the latest injection, the Robin Hood crowd, the day trading crowd that we've seen. And so you know, I'm, I'm seeing this battle that you would, that you would think ultimately you'd, you'd always place your bets on sophistication winning that battle and overwhelming it. But but given the place we are in history, what seems to be perhaps the way everything is structured at the moment, potentially the most damaging event of all, is for unsophistication to gain the upper hand. Because if unsophistication does gain the upper hand, the, the way things are set up and with the, the, the high degree of fragility we have, it could almost accidentally tip things over and, and create this outcome we're talking about, despite the brain power and the, and the firepower amassed against it. It's a, this fascinating. Is the is the dumb money actually the smart money? Right, because right. it's the money that yeah. tips the equation into the right, right. Yeah, and that, and that comes I, back I, to your Ouroboros idea, right? It's it's in that in that sense because the dumb money, because it's so impulsive and comes in with so much velocity, that it actually becomes correct. Right. And becomes the smart money, um, and it goes back to this Jim Rogers concept. At the end of the day, he said, he said um, at the end of a at the end of a massive you know bull market at the end of one regime, I want I want the old school guy who's been through ups and downs. Yep. 
Um, when there's been this regime change or at the beginning of a new bull market, I want the young 22-year-old who's fearless. But I, I think it, it comes down to this idea that um, it's like reg- smart money has problems with regime change. Yeah, absolutely. To give another quote on it, it's like you know Jim Grant talks about this idea that, that uh, Wall Street will find a good idea and then turn it into a bad idea. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we had this, we had this, I was, I was on a panel with um, two really good colleagues yesterday at the EQ Derivatives Conference. It was a virtual panel. But there was this great question from the audience where someone comes in and says, well, if you system, if everyone tail hedges and you systematize the, the execution of the tail hedges and the, the, the taking of the money, does it result in a framework where you never have a tail realized or does it change the underlying market and absolutely what would in that philosophical experiment. So in this sense, if smart money op, op spends, you take all these PhDs, you take all these machine learning technologies and you optimize to the last 10 or 20 years, you become susceptible to the regime change right. that occurs. You become fragile to that regime change. And then when the regime change actually happens, it's the kid who walks in with no idea what's going on, who's like, well, let's just do this. Because, and then if enough of those people do that, it tips the market in that direction, particularly when it's dominated by passive actors. Yeah. So I, I love the question. You know, it's the, the dumb money becomes smart money at the point of the regime change. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't, at that point, you don't know who's dumb or who's smart. <laughs> well, haven't we, haven't we kind of seen that? I mean, aren't we kind of in that moment now to some degree, given what's just occurred? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's almost kind of funny because you have sophisticated hedge funds spending millions of dollars trying to front run Robin Hood. Trying to front run Robin Hood. Yeah. And trying to front run Wall Street bets. Yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, that is literally what we're. <laughs> I can't, yeah. I can't think of a better like real life example of that exact topic. Um, but certainly, and it goes back to the whole Tulpa concept, like at, at these moments where there is, at these moments where you have all of these actors that are passive and the, you have central banks that have incentivized flows over fundamentals and then you have leverage being applied that and the re-hedging of the options market reinforces all these trends. Whatever narrative, whatever tulpa someone imagines and they're able to convince everyone else of that becomes the tulpa or the golem right. that becomes a real creation. Yeah. And it's enough to truly tip the market in that way. Um, and that's that's exciting, and it's also terrifying. Yeah, the yeah. Same no, way. It, it it truly is. Yeah, because there's, there's one more thing I'd I'd love to ask you about uh, changing the subject a, a little bit, and that is pension funds. That you know, they, they they've come up a number of times in this conversation, and you know, I think anyone that's looked at them um, has looked at the the level of underfunding in that world um, knows that they pose a, a particular problem to this to this fragile system we've talked about. Um, you know, I'm assuming that you've had conversations with many pension funds about volatility, about what's happening. What's the sense 
that you get as to their understanding of this problem. Because if 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 their understanding is not what it needs to be, again, that that adds a massive layer of problematic uh, 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 volatility onto the top of all this other stuff we've been talking about. It is one of the biggest systemic problems yeah. in our industry today. And I would s- climb the top of a mountain and, s- and scream it because now I think there are very smart people in these pension systems, but they're heavily bureaucratic. Yeah. And many times they have a board of trustees that they have to, uh, that they have to, to abide by, uh, that they have to report to. In many cases, those, those are well-meaning people who aren't financially uh, educated. Um, it is a disaster that is about to happen. Um, they are, the average pension system is 71% tied in equity and equity-linked products. That amount has risen. Yeah. Um, and they have about uh, 20% in, in uh, fixed income. The game plan is that they want to use that fixed income to hedge those equi- those equity exposures, and they believe that the solution to meeting their seven point two five percent return target is by layering on more private equity and leverage. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in essence, they they have a massively short, long GDP portfolio that is not hedged by any right or left tail convexity. And um, so I did in my paper, the, the allegory of the hawk and serpent, I looked back over 100 years. Um, we looked at the returns of the average pension system based on data from global financial data uh, over 100, 100 plus years. Um, it's incredible. So right now, um, right now, based on the seven, based on the, the rosy assumptions, um, 80% of, uh, about 74% of state pension systems are under the critical 80% funding threshold. And about one in 10 systems are under the 50% threshold. But if you go back and you look at the numbers that they actually will get, they, they think they can get seven, 8%. Yeah. You know, th- what they're going to actually get is closer to four or 5%. And keep in mind, these are pre COVID numbers. So based on that, what I found is that the majority of pension systems are already effectively insolvent effectively insolvent right now. And that one third of pension systems have under 30% funding ratios. And this is if you adjust their, if you adjust their returns by what is a more realistic assumption based on a hundred years of history. Um, Worse yet, worse yet, these systems have no protection against either the right tail fiat devaluation scenario that we've discussed or the left tail default scenario. They don't have long volatility exposure. They don't have gold exposure. They don't have um, convexity exposure. They've got none of this because they don't want it because it hasn't performed in the last 10 years. So if you go ahead and you adjust these numbers, if you adjust these numbers, uh, right now we see that the the average... um, uh, the average pension liability is about 1.4 trillion. But if you expand the numbers to something much more realistic, the actual liability is about $3 trillion for U.S. state pension systems. And that's otherwise the cost of four bank bailouts during the great financial crisis or the entire tax revenues of the U.S. government. Now, actually, there are scenarios. These, were number, these numbers were pre-COVID. 
So there are scenarios where you could see up to $10 trillion of unfunded liabilities. Yeah. Jesus. There is no way out of this. These systems are going to, they're going to, they're going to default, either default in the sense of not being able to meet their obligations, um, or they're going to default in the sense that uh, they're going to have to inflate away uh, the, the, the right. real value of those assets. And um, I, I think that eventually a scenario where the states issue pension obligation bonds that are bought by the Fed to close this funding gap is inevitable. This is the only way out that I see. Yeah. That the Fed will print, like not only will be the, the, they will, the Fed will print money, there'll be some conduit, the way there is with the corporate debt market right now, you will see that with the pension bond, the, the pension systems. The pension systems will issue uh, debt that will stop get their funding liability. And then the treasury will buy that debt with loans from the, uh, the Fed, or the Fed will just print money and flat out. Of course, this, this is an inevitability. This is the great tragedy that is coming down. It is, it is not a tragedy that um, they, could, they could prevent this. Because, you know, I talk about this idea that if you had a portfolio that can sustain for 100 years, 20% gold, 20% equity, 20% volatility exposure, 20% trending commodity exposure and 20% fixed income, that portfolio applied in a risk-adjusted way can meet the return targets and consistently performs through all market cycles. The portfolio these pension systems have today will collapse if there's a secular decline. And uh, I think it's a great tragedy and it's coming. Well, there's no, there's no real way out. I mean, it's. I mean, as you as you noted, we're past the point of no return, and the mindset is to monetize whatever needs to be monetized. You can you can see it's all set up. So the question becomes: I mean, it's pretty easy to see us getting to that point and them doing exactly what you said. The question I have is: at some point, either the bond market gives in or the currency gives in because of the. And if the bond market gives in, then the Fed's got to plug that dike, you know, trying to keep rates from backing up. I mean. I mean, you're talking about monetization. I know you already know this. On an, I'm just sort of summarizing for others who may not see where it, on a massive, massive scale that makes what we've seen so far kind of look like a rounding error. It's a, it's a social problem too. Exactly. Yes. Yes. You've got a barbell, right? Because you've got, in effect, you've got the largest segment of the population are the baby boomers and the other actually the largest now it's kind of millennials, right? Millennials, and, yeah. and Gen Z. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you have baby boomers and these are your two big segments of the population. And I, I think this is contributing to political polarization. So on one framework, a portion of the population is going to want to defend those asset prices at all costs in order to maintain their quality of life and retirement. And the other portion of the population which is coming in with inflated home prices, no job prospects, massive student debt loads are going to say, screw it, let's inflate it away. And this is going to create a generational crisis and a political crisis in the country. And I I think some of the political polarization that we've seen, um, I mean, there's a lot of elements going on there, but I think think there, there is a economic argument that comes down to a generational crisis that we have not even begun to see how that uh, one segment of the population benefits from yeah. these QE liquidity policies. The other segment is, is really getting hurt. 
and um, and this is this this is spilling over into a social crisis, and uh, that's that's why it's beyond even an ability to to know and what happens in markets. You have to look at it from a social angle as well. Yeah, no, it's it's so true, and I think the thing that's kept everybody pacified to a degree has been the lack of understanding of that transmission mechanism, certainly through the first iterations of QE. People didn't really understand what was happening. The people that benefited didn't care because they were getting wealthier. And the people that weren't getting wealthier didn't understand what was happening and, and kept being told that this is the right thing to do. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's saving the country and it's saving the economy and it's saving you know, everybody. Um, and they were just too either uninformed or nice passive to actually do anything about it but that it's clear that that understanding level is is increasing now because people are are just not feeling like they are being told they should feel and so they're starting to try and understand why and and unfortunately i think for the for the federal reserve and for for governments the number of dots you have to join once you decide to try and figure this out is way too short it's like two or three dots and once you join those three the whole picture emerges and that that potentially leads to the just you know, the but you but you know on on the other hand i i would just because this is on the same topic it sort of seems surprising to me that while if you really spend time looking at it it's rather obvious that the sort of the root of the bifurcation of wealth and the income disparity has been fed policies particularly in the last uh 20 years and yet the people that rail the hardest against that guys like Paul Krugman to pick an example who ought to be able to see the thing that he champions a, a more of the of what's gone on is exactly what's created the problem that he hates the most and i, I just I, I don't say that to try to be nasty i'm at some in order to I, to address the problem the elephant in the room of a, a lot of these things that have allowed these trends to get to where they are has been federal reserve policies, bad ones, and a continuation of the same thing. So to get some recognition of, of this, I mean, don't we have to have some level of people understand that they're, that they're, that they're actually the, the problem, not the solution? Yeah, I, I, I think you bring up a great point. I mean, I, I think if you go up to the average person and I think people can articulate that they're angry, yeah. Yes. They they have a sense that things are not right. Um, they understand that their lives are 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 harder, um, and they understand that the income disparity is at the greatest level in American history. That's a fact. Um, yet they can't tie it exactly why, which I think is why conspiracy theories become so are so prevalent in today's world. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, I think, you know, conspiracy theories are just Bayes theorem gone, in, gone crazy. You know, you just, you just over inflate a, a, a prior and then whatever confirmation comes in, you take an over inflated prior and then add to that massively. But, you know, in, in effect, um, because it's very difficult to explain the complexity, uh, God, it's, it's, it's hard for professionals to sit back and understand the workings of the euro dollar market, the workings of how the uh, options market affects underlying stock prices, how pass investing does. It's incredibly difficult for professionals 
and requires a multidisciplinary, you know, people look at me as a hedge fund manager, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I have one expertise, right? And in, in, in the world of asset management, there's multiple expertise, you need multiple expertise to understand the total picture. And it's almost impossible for somebody to, to be able to do that when they're working as a fireman or working as a teacher, much less if they're a trustee for a pension system overseeing an asset allocation. Uh, and, and, and so, but there's a sense that something is wrong and that the world is not right and that the economics are unfair and that there's something deeply perverted. And so you just, it makes conspiracy so much easier to accept as a way of, of, of a way of having some feeling of control over this economic randomness and chaos. You know, um, Chris, we, when we when we started talking, it was daylight. Uh, it's, it's it's dark now. <laughs> we've we've taken we've taken a lot more of your time than than I, I thought we would. So I, I apologize for that. But but look, I mean, hopefully we can continue this conversation because I've, I've I've got notes coming out everywhere. My brain is spinning once again, um, as it always does when I talk to you. Curse you, Chris Cole. Um, but uh, yeah, this this I think this conversation perfectly illustrates why both Bill and I were so keen to have you come and be a part of this series because the, the, the perspective you bring is just, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary and, it, and it's so broad and yet it all ties into that, that one single asset, right? And, and, and you, you said it to me years ago and nothing I've seen in the, in the almost four or five years since has, has given me cause to doubt it, that this one asset class of volatility is, is going to be the most important one going forward. So I, I can't thank you enough for, for sharing your views on it and hopefully uh, expanding other people's views of why it is so important to understand this. Well, thank you. And I, I, I lo- it's, it's a great honor to come on the podcast. I, th- I think you guys have put together an incredible number of amazing thinkers. And um, I can't, can't think of two better uh, uh, people to moderate those discussions. Yeah, both, both of you um, very, very fond of, of your work and, and your journalism and, 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 you know, you know, Bill, your, your experience as a short seller, obviously, um, and your knowledge. Boy, did I, do- did I dodge a bullet when I shut my shirt button down? <laughs> no I had no idea. <laughs> I thought, well, this QE is going to be kind of rough. I know the feds, they're my number one enemy. This, you know, uh, you know, I had no idea what we were about to embark on. Hey, well, Bill, it, you, you, you just cool. proved that point. You, honestly, you just proved that point. You proved that point, Bill. You were dumb money that became smart. How about that? There you go. There you go. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for this. Uh, I mean, I, I, I can. I mean, you're the, you, you can see Bill and I's faces during this. You can see us hanging on for dear life. Um, but, uh, but it was a pleasure to hang on. So, so thank you so much. I will, I will make sure that we tell everybody where they can read more of your stuff and uh, when we wrap this up. So it won't keep you any longer. I just like to say, Chris, I love being able to read your papers. Now, I must admit, I can't ever. It takes me three times oh, yeah. to through it to get the gist of it. But I really hope that maybe uh, not too, you know, somewhere down the road after some more mer- variables move around and we get some more data, we can we can come back and revisit this conversation. I'd, I'd love to. It'd be a lot of fun. So, all right, great. It's an Chris, exciting next couple of years. Have a, yeah, have a great night. Please. Thanks again. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye bye. Well, we keep doing it, my friend. <laughs> we keep doing it. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more wrung out on this yeah. one than no, uh, because, um, you know, even as we were talking um, earlier, you know, I, I have a re- 
for the average, you know, hedge fund operator, I have a pretty good understanding of the options market. But what's transpired in the last decade with all these guys really tearing it apart and doing the stuff and the things that Chris and Mike and um, others along that line have been able to do is, you know, absolutely mind boggling. And, you know, if we hadn't had a chance to really, you know, this one good thing that's come out of Twitter, quite frankly, for me is to find guys like, I mean, I've known Chris, but, you know, to to see this and then, and then be able to talk to these fellas about the things that they've discovered and where it leads. And, uh, but I mean, um, It's sort of interesting that the future looks so dark. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, look, it, it, but it's, it's true. It's it's unfortunately it, people don't like to face dark potential outcomes, right? We don't like to look darkness in the face. We'd much rather cling to the other alternative, even if it's becoming increasingly less likely, because we want the hopeful outcome. But you know, Chris's Chris's genius is, you know, that brain of his is an extraordinary thing but he has this unbelievable ability to communicate what is beyond the realms of most of us in a way and 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 again i i, I cannot stress enough for the people listening to this that haven't uh, had the joy of reading chris's work D- don't be put off when you know, bill talks about reading it three times i you know i have a color system i have three different colored highlighter pens for the three times <laughs> i have to read the thing i mean i'm not even kidding but every single one of them is a is a true work of art, and if you take the time to read Chris's work um, and think about it and 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 understand it, I, it, it, your your mind will expand in ways that are really hard to describe. So, um, well, I also think that you know, you and I have been at this for quite a long time, and so relative to the average person, we're a little more sophisticated. I think for the average person. Not that you're necessarily going to be able to digest all this, but just to be aware, as Mike Green said, you know, uh, make sure the game you think you're playing is the game you're playing, however cleverly said it. The average person kind of needs to know that there's these kind of spooky things out there. There is this pension debacle that's coming. There is this weird you know, uh, brokenness, so to speak, of, of of corporations. Of course, when the Fed's buying the bonds, you don't get to see that. But there's some really big festering problems, and you have to keep that in the back of your mind. And they may not matter tomorrow, next day, next week, nope. but they're probably going to matter in the next group of years. And I'm not sure I can tell anyone exactly what they're supposed to do, but I think you could listen to Chris and get some ideas of what he thinks might be a, yeah. a decent way to yeah. position yourself. Absolutely right. Well, uh, again, mate, I'm I, I'm supposed to go out for dinner now, and I, I, I'm, I'm going to be great company sitting there with my head in the clouds trying to think all this through. But um, uh, okay, so so again, for those of you listening, um, you can you can find out a lot more about Chris uh, about Artemis Capital Management, and the work he does. Um, you'll find them at artemiscm.com. Um, there's a there's a research tab on that website. And all Chris's work is there, and it's it's God bless him. He makes it free to everybody, and it's just it's just a fantastic thing to read and educate yourself. Chris, you'll find on Twitter um, at vol underscore Christopher. Uh, make sure you spell Christopher with an I, and otherwise you'll get the imposter. Um, <laughs> I, w- I would recommend you follow him. He, some of the stuff he puts out again, it's 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 two hundred and forty characters, whatever it is, but it's incredibly thought provoking every single time. Um, all that remains, Bill, I guess, is to is to uh, thank everybody for listening. Um, I, I'm sure just like us, they're going to go away from this and maybe 
sit down and have to listen to it through again. But, you know, that's the beauty of these podcasts. Yeah, Every that single start one of these. drinking. Yeah, well, that's yeah, what I'm going to do. Start drinking. That's exactly what I'm going to do. But, that's, you know, that's the beauty of every single one of these conversations we've had. Um, it almost requires a second and sometimes a third listen to, 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 to gain the understanding. It's so dense. And we've been so fortunate with our guests. Every single one of them has added something extraordinary to this conversation. I couldn't agree more. Well, we will be back again um, with uh, the next in the Endgame series. Um, in the meantime, uh, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, uh, you'll, you can do that quite easily. Uh, follow me at TTMYGH. And I'm Blackcap. Yes, he is, at Fleckcap, if you want to follow him on Twitter. Otherwise, oh, just, yeah, otherwise that's just, true. he's just Fleckcap to other people. That's, you need the at sign. Yeah, you're like, you're like Prince on Watani. You've only got, got the one there. You don't even need the at. Um, please do uh, rate or review the podcast uh, in iTunes if you have a moment, and please do recommend it to your friends. That's the best way we can uh, help people to find this and, and grow the audience. And, and I think, as I said, the, the subjects we're talking about are worthy of a big audience because they really do affect a lot of people who don't realize it yet. Well, thanks to everybody. Uh, thanks to James, our engineer, who does a fantastic job editing these. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. That was quite something. It sure was. I mean, um, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not stressed in a nervous kind of way. No. I'm stressed in a focused con- concentration kind of tired sort of way. Yeah, no, exactly you know, right. You know I, I mean, mean, it's... it's um, I love that. I mean, I really, every time I did, Chris does this to me and he just takes me off down so many roads that, and he just, something about him in my brain just ties so many different things together. And I can't help but think that that is, that speaks to how important volatility is. Because when I speak to the Vol guy, he's the one that for me ties Mike Green's work in and Lacey Hunt's work in and, and all these things. You know, it's the Vol guy talking to him that makes me connect all these little dots. Yeah, I thought that was really um, quite useful from like today's market all the way to the pension problems and and essentially Fed balance sheet uh, monetization or helicopter money. It seems clearer, at least talking to Chris, that his view is more that, you know, that we're, this is going to end in massive monetization until that somehow stopped. Yeah. I, I don't see anything that can get in the way of that outcome because it's oh. the politically most expedient thing to do in the short run, which is what they always do. Yeah, and, and the alternative is, is chaos. I mean, yes. this will lead to Real chaos, chaos, but yes. chaos a little bit further down the track. Why, they, 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 won't, they won't see the chaos that it leads to. It'll seem like it's gonna, they're going to make it all okay. Yeah. And they just be, it be, it's going to be as it's been. You know, we started out with Greenspan running irresponsible monetary policy in the late 90s. They gave us the Y2 liquidity shot, which blew the top off the market, and they took it back out, and that was that. Then they came in to try to bail out that bubble and created the real estate bubble. Then they tried to bail out that bubble. And now we're here and it's, it's just gets bigger and bigger and they're not going to, they're just not going to stop. And so no, they, they can't now. That's the thing. That's why, that's yeah. why I asked about that experiment thing. It's no longer an experiment. They don't have the option no. to, to turn it no. off now. And you know, I mean, Steph Pomboy has been talking about this pension thing for yes, she several has. years yeah. now, right? She's been all yeah. over that yes. thing for several she years. She sure has. Yep. And, and the, and she's done nothing but present incredible data to back it up. And you look at it and you go, yeah, but, but it hasn't happened yet. But when you hear someone like Chris talk about it and you hear Chris talk in, in such kind of stark terms, 
Right. And, and Chris is not that guy. Chris is a guy that just right. looks at right. the numbers, right? And he, he takes what the data is telling him. So when you hear Chris talking about this stuff, you know, I think that we are so much closer to it all happening than people realize. I think that, I think that's, that's very true. And also there are other little potential warning signs. Like for instance, I'm trying not to draw any conclusions right now in front of the election because there's so much noise. <laughs> yeah, right. But I've had a handful of people say to me, well, um, uh, we've now gone through uh, what um, Felix said, you know, the 10 year we're going through, I can't remember if he said 60 or 70 beats. Yeah, 60, yeah. Bond. We, we've gone That's through 60. both of his targets and people say, does it matter? I, I, I don't know. But, you know, on the day that we're recording this, the market was quite weak. Bonds yeah. didn't rally. That was a little bit we saw in March. So is that a precursor of them having a, get after help the bond market as well i don't know yeah well, well look, the, 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 i mean the point is to feel this thing right does it matter today no it doesn't matter today no does it matter that it's happened well possibly and felix has given you the reasons why so it's just something that should be on everybody's radar and 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 okay that's mm-hmm. that's one thing that's that a smart guy said is something he's watching for okay that's happened so yes that's something i need to be watching for now and and you know oftentimes these things you know they 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 lead to these extreme outcomes and it's only afterwards that you look back and you, and you can kind of, you go, you know what, yeah. that when Felix said, if this happens, it was right after that. And, and, and you, at the time you never really understand. That's why it's so good to have these kind of markers Excellent. in the ground from people. Like Excellent. Felix. Excellent point. Excellent point. Anyway, well, listen, mate, uh, I will let you go. <laughs> I am going to start drinking. <laughs> I need a drink. I'll talk I know, to you later. I know exactly what you mean. I'm going to do the same. All right. All right, mate. Take care. <laughs> See you. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.